0: Join us now in the studio with Michael Card, who's at home in Franklin, Tennessee, and got a
1: house full of grandchildren right now. huh, Mike? That's right. We had uh, three of my grandchildren who live in Colorado Springs. I, I surprised my wife and and flew them in, and uh, yeah, this is our what's today, day Tuesday. Um, yeah, we've been they've been here three days and they're going to be here till Friday, and oh, we are that's wonderful. Oh, we are having so much fun. We're having so much fun. They're great kids. So it was a
0: surprise for Susan. You pulled that off, okay?
1: It was. They came in around midnight, and I put them in bed and covered them up, and woke Susan up and said, "I think there's a weird noise upstairs. You need to go tell me what this is." And when she oh, man. when she stumbled in there, I pulled the sheet back, and there were her grandkids. So, oh, yeah. so there's yeah. a prankster side to Michael Card. That's yeah, pretty well, cool. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I wanted to make it a good a good surprise. <laughs> Uh, I think that's wonderful. Uh,
0: and yeah. Say hi to Susan and all the kids, too, for us. So, yeah. Hey, we have a, a whole program outlined here that we're looking forward to sharing. We're going to use a little bit from our archive. Uh, Lyle Dorsett will be with us talking about John Wesley. Ashley Cleveland will be here with her music and story coming up in the second half of the program. And also in the first half, in a few moments, we're going to turn again to your teaching at The Cove, the Billy Graham Center in Asheville, North Carolina. What's What's ahead in the teaching segment, Mike?
1: Well, we're going to look at a, a section of the Gospel of Mark in chapter 10 that's uh, organized around four questions. Uh, it, it's amazing. Uh, Jesus, he asks uh, a, a lot of 300-some-odd qu- questions, and uh, one writer that I just read said he only answers three of them. But I, hmm. I haven't I haven't double-checked that my, myself, so I don't trust those numbers yet. But he uses—he <laughs> says things with questions, and then— uh, uh, and then uh, occasionally he'll 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 answer questions when uh, when other people ask him, but usually he leaves things left unsaid because he wants you to engage. Uh, yeah, so he doesn't yeah. just didactically teach things the way we do. He He draws you in with questions which I think is fascinating.
0: The one and only Jesus, right? Well, if yes. you have your Bible? Hopefully, it's a CSB translation of the Bible, which we use here in the studio. But if you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 10 to follow along as Mike presents that teaching here in just a couple of minutes. Uh, A couple of comments. First, before we do anything else, uh, this person left a review at Apple Podcasts of our Hmm. program uh, and says, I've listened to Michael Card since I became a Christian in the early 1980s, and God used his music to inspire me to study his word because of the beautiful pictures I saw in Michael's music. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Jesus. Mm, wow. So, what a wonderful, nice. encouraging.
2: Nice.
0: Yeah. Geez. Which leads me to say, if you've not left a review, an official review at Apple or Google Play or uh, Spotify, any place you can leave comments and review the podcast, it really does help. Because other people are cruising through these podcasts and looking and reading those comments and deciding how to spend their time listening. So yeah. let's uh, let's get some even new listeners. You can help us with that. Just one more quick note. I love listening to In the Studio with Michael Card. It's just like being with you in concert plus extra teaching.
1: Uh, from all kinds of great guests, <laughs> yeah.
0: I might okay. add. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Okay, coming up, that teaching from the Cove. We're going to hear your music, an important part of this podcast. What will it take to keep you from Jesus? You want to say a word about the gentleman who accompanies you on this song?
1: Well, uh, you know, uh, arguably the greatest saxophone player who's alive, uh, Kirk Whalem, who is Whitney, Whitney Houston's saxophone player. But he was an elder at our church. He loves Jesus. He's a, just a remarkable guy. And that that we have can have him on this program, to me, is just almost miraculous. So he he graciously came and played this song. Well, listen as Mike
0: and Kirk present, What Will It Take to Keep You from Jesus?
3: take to keep you from Jesus, keep you from heeding his call, the simple excuse of a heart that is hard, a reason that's nothing at all. And there was a man who was owned by his money, he was as rich as could be. But deep in his heart was a voice that was crying, telling him he wasn't free. When he questioned the master concerning his problem, the answer took his breath away. For his money had come to me more than his soul, forever was stand in his way. What will it take to keep you from Jesus, keep you from heeding his call? A simple excuse of a heart that is hard A reason that's nothing at all And how long before you stop with your reasons Take your defenses away It's only a lie that keeps you from following Don't let it stand in your way So many excuses and so many lies Are blocking the light and the way But the final decision to follow the Lord Will shatter and blow them away And once there was one who was lame in his body Sick in his body and soul Though he didn't know all the facts about Jesus He knew that he longed to be home. So with some of his friends he went seeking and found him So many stood in their way So they tore through the roof and they lowered him down For nothing could keep him away what will it take to keep you from Jesus Keep you from heeding his call Simple excuse of a heart that is hard, a reason that's nothing at all.
1: So let's look at Mark 10 and uh, the four questions. Luke takes 10 chapters to cover this material. Mark does it in one chapter. Thank you, Mark. The 1st We'll overview it, and then we'll look at the text. Um, The first question uh, is verse 2. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? It gets into the whole issue of divorce. Um, And Jesus gives us his view on marriage and divorce. And basically, it's pretty simple although I think it's been uh, misconstrued and used as a a club to beat people up with. Um, Jesus' basic idea of divorce is if God makes a bond, a man can't break it. Man can't undo something that God's done. So if God has put you together, man can't separate you. Now, I I still think it's a valid question, and I think it's a valid question because the Bible makes the provision for divorce because of the hardness of our hearts, right? The provision is made... Um, if God has put you together, man can't separate you. That's why when Jesus says if you, you know, divorce and marry someone else, that's adultery. That's not to beat you up. That's to say he's making the point that you never broke that bond. Right? You see what I'm saying? So it's not condemning. It's In a sense, it's liberating. Okay, thank you. Okay. Stephanie is agreeing with me, so I'm good. So if, if anyone disagrees with any of this, talk to her. Uh, but in in this conversation, the very conservative Jesus says, "What did Moses say?" And I want to uh, uh, um, commend uh, this idea that in many ways Jesus is the conservative and the Pharisees are the liberals. And the 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 the, the verse it all hinges on is Deuteronomy 24:1. Okay, and. Hillel and Shammai have two positions on divorce, and it is so simple. So let me, let me explain that to you really quickly. There, there are two words that are, are applied. One is displeasing, and one is improper. And it all depends on which word you focus on. So let me, let me explain that. Deuteronomy 24.1, If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something improper about her he may write her a divorce certificate hand it to her and send her away from his house so here's the question which one of those two words do you becomes the key word well for hillel the key word was displeasing and very uncharacteristic of hillel he basically said for any woman for any reason if you don't like the way she fixed breakfast for you if you're displeased you can send your wife away Odd. Doesn't sound like Hillel, but that's Hillel. Shammai said anything improper, and by that he he meant adultery. And so Shammai was the one who was more kind of more severe, and this is the one case where Jesus sides with Shammai. Okay? Interesting. Uh, Jesus sides with Shammai. Uh, Jesus' mind on marriage is based in Genesis 127, uh, which he will quote in verse 7. They're united, one flesh, no longer two but one, joined together, you can't separate. It's this thing, marriage is this thing God does that man can undo. And that's the point. The point is not to shame you or beat you up if you've experienced a divorce. The point is um, to, to, I guess, help you understand what marriage really is. It's something that God does. And at the same time, and again, I, I don't talk about this much because it's, it can be misused, but the Bible makes provision for divorce, right? There is biblical provision for divorce because our hearts are hard. So, uh, so my, here's my conclusion on that first question. Jesus' final statement is the logical conclusion of his view on marriage as a unity and a bond established by God. Adultery is the result of the fact that the God-made bond is unbreakable. It is not a statement meant to be used as a bat. He acknowledges Deuteron- Deuteronomy 24.1 and the provision made for divorce because of the hardness of the human heart. Okay. And isn't it interesting, right after that, verses 13 through 16, there's a little vignette with children. Uh, and it's appropriate to me that a story about children follows because the children are the ones who tend to suffer most. Okay, the next, um, the next question is verse 17. And um, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We looked at that. And uh, Jesus, the conservative, responds... You know the commandments, so basically you obey the commandment. And this is a rare time when a, a, a Pharisee—I don't know if he's a scribe or a Pharisee. Anyway, it's not a trick question. He's really—he's asking because he really wants to know. Okay. Uh, when Jesus answer his answers the question, his face fell or it clouded up. Um, And the conclusion is, Jesus' mandate in verse 21 reveals that, in fact, he'd not kept all the commandments. In fact, he'd broken the very first one. He'd made money as God. See, Jesus says, you know, keep the commandments. And the guy says, I have already. You see Jesus going, "Uh uh-huh. Okay, Jesus says, okay, you only need to do one more thing. Sell all you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And he can't do it. Why? Why? Because he's rich. And we've just been talking about the, the non-negotiable of letting go of all your possession. Well, he can't let go of all his possessions, so he can't be a disciple. And so Jesus' questions reveals the fact. He didn't, break the very, he didn't keep all the commandments. He broke broken the very first one, which is have no other gods before me. See, money had been his God. Isn't that elegant? Just elegant. I love that. So, uh, so that's the second question. And then the third question, third and fourth question are the same words, and it's Jesus asking, what do you want me to do for you? And my note says, how many times a day did Jesus ask that question? On this day, he asked it at least twice. What do you want me to do for you? Uh, This is 1035. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, And they, by the way, whenever you hear those two names together, they're the bookends. They're the first and the last to die. James is the first to die. John's the last to die. Um, Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's like a five-year-old, right? Okay, you know, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but I want you to do whatever I ask you, okay? Yeah. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. He had just promised them thrones. So this is not such a jerky thing for them to ask. He's, he's, he's told them, you're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the tribes of Israel. So let's, let's cut James and John a little slack. Uh, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Because they want to be on his left and right. What is that going to mean in a couple of days? It's going to mean hanging on a cross in his right or left. He goes, you have no idea what you're asking for. And listen, listen to what he says. You have no idea what you're asking. Can you drink this, the, the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptize, baptism I'm baptized with? We can, They answered, and the first and the last to die. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup. And be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant; those places belong to those for whom my Father has prepared them. So that's uh, that's the first, that's the third question. But the first time he says, "What do you want me for?" You? Now this is the last one, and we're out of time almost. This is verse 46. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus, Jericho, by the way, is the oldest city in the world. Do you know that? Then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd. See, they're moving along. They're going They're going for Passover. And this large crowd isn't, it's, it's what happens every year when everyone goes to Jerusalem for Passover. They're not necessarily all crowding around Jesus. Now Jesus has a group of followers around him, don't get me wrong. But the triumphal entry is often... The portrayal is that all these thousands and thousands of people are there with Jesus. They're not. He's, he's a Passover pilgrim. He's entering for Passover with everybody else. And he has, he has some excited followers around him, don't get me wrong. But uh, if it had been that large a crowd, the Romans would have killed all of them. Okay. So they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging Uh, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth he began to shout Jesus son of David have mercy on me Bartimaeus is the only person in the Gospel of Mark who calls Jesus Jesus how cool is that he's the only person who addresses Jesus by his personal name that's pretty cool I think Jesus, son of David, have mercy. Hesed, show me hesed. I don't deserve it. I want what I don't deserve. And I know that you're the kind of person I can ask for that from. Have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. He won't shut up. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Okay, that's Isaiah 35, 4 and 5. Be strong, fear not, or cheer up. Behold, your God will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. Isn't that beautiful? Now, it's not being quoted. Uh, Mark's not quoting. He thinks in Isaiah. And this is a new idea for me, because we always say, oh, that's an allusion to, or he's quoting the gospel writers are saturated with the Hebrew Bible and they think in these images and these terms. So uh, I don't think he's quoting it. I think he, uh, he uh, he thinks in Isaiah. He's calling you, throwing his cloak aside. He jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Imagine Jesus asking you that. And Jesus has been waiting for three years to hear someone say this. Rabbi, I want to see. He's been waiting for a long time to hear those words. And Jesus heals him, interestingly, by saying, go. Go. Jesus said, your faith has healed you immediately. That's how you know it's Mark. He received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. I like to think when Jesus enters Jerusalem for the last time, there's a dead guy on one side and a blind guy on the other side. Uh, Bartimaeus and uh, and Lazarus He is poor, he is blind, he will be
3: a paradigm One of Jesus' greatest finds there beside the road Calling out, he has the nerve to want what he does not deserve All the beggars begging for mercy from the Lord So come all you beggars up on your feet Take courage, he's calling to you To surrender your striving and find the nerve To boldly ask for what you don't deserve A timeless moment caught in time The beggar leaves it all behind Then the perfect paradigm calls Jesus by name Calling out on his knees with one request he wants to see And he could see immediately when Jesus said go So come all you beggars up on your feet Take courage, he's calling to you To surrender your striving and find the nerve to boldly ask for what you don't deserve.
0: Well, we are excited today to have Dr. Lyle Dorsett back with us on the broadcast, Michael.
2: Welcome back, Dr. Dorsett. It's good to be back. Good to hear the voices of you people.
0: <laughs> well, let's talk about John Wesley. We want to talk about particularly his views on abolition today, but I understand his, his life played quite a role in your life.
2: I'm a midlife convert to the faith, and, and before I became a Christian, when I was in my 30s, I was teaching history. I was always taken by John Wesley. He was one of the few Christians that stood out to me historically who I felt had made an enormous difference in uh, bringing change for good, mm. not only in his own country, but around the world. And I was especially struck by his leadership in the anti-slavery movement. Mm.
0: Who was John Wesley?
2: His life spanned almost the entire 18th century. He was born in 1703 in England and died in 1791. Mm. And he was an Oxford graduate. He had two degrees from Oxford he was ordained in the Anglican Church. It was the faith he was raised in, and he had been a missionary for a time in uh, in Georgia, in the colonies. He was uh, also a uh, a traveling preacher over the years. He had what he called really his conversion experience in 1738. The famous statement of when he when he said his heart was strangely warmed, and he went from really a works righteousness in his life mm. to understanding that he was saved by grace through faith, that it wasn't his works. He, he really was changed enormously, and uh, he, that, that event happened after many, many months and even years of wrestling in his soul and trying to find peace with God mm. through various, you know, striving to be holy. But he heard a man reading from Luther's introduction to his commentary on Romans, the Holy Spirit touched him, and he understood for the first time that he really was saved by grace and From that point on, I mean he had he had good news as he saw it, and he traveled all over the United Kingdom and uh, preaching that people really had to be born again and uh, mm. a lot of a lot of British Christians, especially sacramentalists, had believed that you know if you're baptized and confirmed, you're in and Wesley said that's not right. Mm.
1: Dr. Dorsted, I was interested, and I've been I've been reading on uh, uh, some of the backgrounds of uh, the slavery movement in uh, in America, and I had no idea that uh, Wesley uh, had been so uh, so much a part of reaching out uh, to the slave community. I didn't know any anything like that had ever happened.
2: Well, he really did, and it, it's it's a <clears throat> there's a strain in Wesley, first of all, that I think just needs to be seen manifested in his his own Theology and in the way he did things, and that is he had a very sensitive and tender heart towards poor people mm-hmm. and to the marginalized and uh, as, as he argued, and I think he's right, the same way that the Savior did yeah, and anyway, when he was in Georgia, and he was not a very successful missionary in terms of church planting or even seeing many people converted, but he was appalled by the institution of slavery, he in particular wanted to see. Uh, slaves educated, and most of the slave owners did not want to see them educated. I think they were afraid of what would happen, so he was advocating the the education of slaves, and uh, that made him unpopular
1: yeah well I know that late, later on it became a law that uh, that was after wesley 's time, but it was still before the civil war there was a there was a law that slaves couldn 't be taught to read.
2: That's right. Yeah. That's right. But he, he was always battling against those kinds of things. Yeah. And this was one of the points of contention even between uh, George Whitfield and John Wesley. They had some theological wars, so to speak, and mm. sometimes they heated up almost a warlike fashion, mm. although they ministered together and Whitfield was supportive of slavery and said it could be supported through the scriptures. In, in Georgia, where he was. And, and Whitfield had a tender heart towards the poor, but he took a more of what would be called a traditional position on slavery at that time. Hmm. And Wesley, increasingly over the years, became markedly and vehemently anti-slavery.
0: And it wasn't just in this country either. I mean, this is the time before Wilberforce had succeeded in uh, with his abolition efforts in British-ruled world at that
2: time. Well, that's right. And frankly, as, as a secular historian before I was a Christian, I understood, as did most historians, that John Wesley was the man whom God used to plant the fire into William Wilberforce's soul.
3: Mm-hmm. Wow, I didn't and, know that.
2: And Wilberforce led the charge that abolished the slave trade in uh, in Britain in uh, 1807. In fact, a lot of people don't know this, but the last letter John Wesley wrote before he died in 1791 was to William Wilberforce, and it, it's a fascinating letter, and uh, and it, it really pours out his heart. Uh, do, do you want me to take time to mention it? Or I w- would,
1: no, you- I'd love to hear about it. A couple, couple minutes, go ahead. I'm looking for my pen to write this down. Here. <laughs>
2: well, Wesley had been reading a book by a freed slave uh, titled The Interesting Narrative of the Life of Gustavus Bassa. And uh, Wesley had read the book, and it just continued to pour coals on the fire. And he was moved by this black man's story, and he was especially appalled in learning about it, that blacks, their testimony would never be accepted, even if they were free blacks. Their testimony would never be accepted in a court of law over that of a white man. Yeah. And so he writes a letter on November 24th uh, to William Wilberforce, and I, I have it here in front of me, and I want to quote it. He said, Slavery is an execrable villainy. Hmm. Another time he called it the excrement of British society. He wow. said, Slavery is an execrable villainy, which is the scandal of England and of human nature. Hmm. He said, I'm shocked when a man has a black skin, and if he is wronged or attacked by a white man, he has no redress. Mm. Uh, The letter is very evangelical, and, and he challenges Wilberforce, and this is the last letter he wrote, and it really touched Wilberforce. He said, go on in the name of God and in the power of his might till even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, shall
0: vanish before it. Wow, it took nearly another 20 years then for that to happen in England. I- I'm sorry our time has gone here, but that, that enough is- gets us thinking about this, Michael.
1: Yeah, what are some of the best books we can uh, find to read read more about this?
2: Well, I think, Probably there are a lot of biographies of Wesley, but the one I like best is Roy Hattersley, H-A-T-T-E-R-S-L-E-Y, Roy Hattersley, The Life of John Wesley. Mm-hmm. And uh, Hattersley uh, does quite a bit with this.
0: Dr. Lyle Dorsett, our time is always too brief with you, but you'll be back with us again, I hope. Thank you. We need to pause the session right here, but there's much more on the way. We're always glad to read your reactions to this program. You can send your comments, song requests, or questions to us when you write to in the studio at michaelcard.com. That's in the studio at michaelcard.com. And coming up in a moment, a little mini concert here in the studio with Ashley Cleveland. And then Michael will be back with a final word about our passage of study here today. So stay tuned. The Christian Standard Bible, scholarly, accurate, readable, current. That's why we're excited to partner with CSB.
1: I'm glad we're partnering with the CSB. I got to see firsthand the way godly scholars work together on this Bible translation. Now I get to use the CSB in my study and teaching.
0: Visit csbible.com and explore the variety of options available to get this fresh translation into your hands. And when you order, receive your 40% discount on your CSB purchase at LifeWay when you use the promotion code CARD40. Just type CARD40 with no spaces for your 40% discount. The Christian Standard Bible, a great translation, a great selection, and a great discount. So many study Bibles and editions designed to make God's Word accessible in our busy lives. Choose a copy that fits your needs online at csbible.com.
1: I hope you'll find one that will help you get serious about reading God's Word.
0: Welcome back into the studio with Michael Card. Our special guest now is Ashley Cleveland.
2: Ashley?
4: Would you be afraid of your burden of sin? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you or evil? A victory when there's a wonderful power in the blood. There is blood of the Lamb, there is a power, power, wonder-working power in the precious Of your pettiness of your pride, there's power in the blood. Power in the blood, come for a cleansing to Calvary's tide. There's a wonderful power in the blood, there is power. Jesus, your King, there's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you live daily as praises to say, there's wonderful power there.
1: Right out the window, every other version of that song I've ever heard is now gone.
0: Uh, <laughs> Ashley Cleveland here in the studio. Yeah. Ashley, have a seat over there in that well-worn guest chair that yeah. we have here. Yeah.
5: Uh, I do like a well-worn chair that makes noise.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Welcome
5: for Thank the first you.
0: time in the studio with us.
5: Ah, it's about time. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, 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 and I hope it won't be the last time. Thanks uh-huh. for for coming. Oh, yeah.
5: my pleasure.
1: Would you do service for Jesus, your King?
5: I, I just love those old hymns. I love the language of them. I love the scripture of them. I love so many things about them. But uh, uh, that one in particular, I really like. So.
1: Well, I think what you just did, at least showed me all over again, how the the messages of those hymns can be embraced again and again and again in, in different forms. I mean, the the melody stays basically the same, and the, the the message stays the same. But it keeps speaking. I mean, it 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 spoke. I don't know where that. You probably know the background of that hymn. Um, this one, I
5: actually don't know. I yeah. I mean, I bragged uh, to you before this uh, segment of the show started that I do know a lot of the background on mm-hmm. a lot of hymns, but. I don't know this one, and I don't know why I've never looked it up. But um, you know, it's funny. It's when you get into looking for background on a lot of these hymns. The thing that's interesting to me is you you can't um, go to one source. You have to go to a multitude of sources because so many of the sources clean up the stories. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. And make them happier. Or give them, you know, more Disney-esque endings. Because so many of the hymn writers lived lives of such excruciating loss and tragedy that it's, you know, and and many of them, their frailties and weaknesses were way out in front on Mm -hmm. display. Which, for somebody like me, is one of the great things about them. Yeah, but uh, I think you know one of the misunderstandings in the church is is that you know that we should be more victorious. Well, and and it's all about the
1: gift, and it's yeah, yeah. I I, I resonate with that. Mm, We've talked about that. Well, I think just the musicians that you and I are sort of in community with the 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 most creative, the most the ones who have the most powerful ministries are the ones that have hurt, been hurt. You know, the most. In fact, I can't think of anybody who who doesn't have a story and doesn't have a struggle that they create out of i'm sure there are sure there are but i don't know any of them no and
5: it's so many you know it took me years to understand because i'm a really broken person and you know i despised that brokenness for so many years and tried to you know sort of compartmentalize it or at least tuck it away where it wouldn't be so obvious but because of the way i'm wired it would just leak out anyway and (laughs) And then, it, you know, I realized at one point that really it was that most broken part of me that was the best thing I had to give away. Well, and
1: that makes you then, I think, uniquely qualified to sing that there is power in the blood. It's oh, not absolutely. just a, just words on a paper.
5: Absolutely, yeah. a lot of people say, "Let's not, let's not do the bloods." Yeah, right, right. Let's, <laughs> let's do, you know. And to me, it's like, absolutely, let's do the blood songs. Bring them on. Yeah, yeah. I know, you know. <laughs>
1: Well, tell us some more of your story. I mean, I remember the first time we met at Christ Prez. Mm-hmm. I don't even know how many years ago that was. We were both young young people. and uh, I mean, when did you first come to Nashville? I
5: moved to Nashville. I'm, uh, I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee, and um, my parents divorced early on, so I had the most bizarre upbringing in that my mother moved to the San Francisco Bay Area, and my father stayed in Knoxville, so... I did all my schooling out in California, um, and then I would come back and spend the summers with my dad, which was literally like time traveling. Mm. It was like operating in two different countries, mm-hmm. and um, uh, and not entirely a, a happy experience for many reasons, but... Um, I came you know at one point I was in I went to I had a brief encounter with the University of Tennessee and I stayed only long enough to identify the clubs I wanted to play music in and um <laughs> Uh, And to meet this wonderful person who's been a friend for many, many years, and that's Pam Tillis, who Mm -hmm. is part of a country music dynasty, her father being Mel Tillis, and she's gone on to be a country star. But we formed a folk duo. And and uh, and played music throughout. You know, we were each at UT just about the same amount of time, and um, and put about the same amount of effort into it. So uh, <laughs> we both left and went our separate ways, but we stayed in touch. So when I decided I wanted to make a serious bid for a music. Industry job of mm-hmm. some ilk. She offered me a place. She offered me a room in her house in Nashville, mm-hmm. and so I came here in 1984. The rest is history, 84. As they say.
0: Eighty four, mm-hmm. yeah. Ashley, since we've got you here in the studio and these guitars here, we've got to hear more music from you this half hour of the show. So, um, what's next? What another hymn or?
1: Yeah,
5: yeah. I'll do another hymn. Uh, I'll do my favorite hymn, and I'm I'm such a profound hymn lover that really is saying something. But I, this was um. This story I do know, and it this is a hymn written by a man named Robert Robinson, I think around the turn of the 17th century, and he grew up in London in a very poor family, and his father died when he was quite young, and his mother wanted him to go to barbering school. <laughs> and he uh, was uh, not at all uh, open to that idea, and instead left home and joined the equivalent of a street gang. And they were out. Uh, getting into vandalism and all kinds of petty theft and mischief and went to heckle a itinerant preacher. And Mr. Robinson uh, instead encountered the Lord Jesus. And he mm-hmm. went on to become a renowned theologian. He was widely recognized throughout Europe as a teacher and a preacher and a writer of beautiful music. And he, um, but late in his life, he became quite disillusioned, and he was, you know, he got sidetracked into a kind of a Unitarian doctrine, and then he just left the faith altogether, mm-hmm. and he um, and he never returned to the faith, and he even uh, talks about his, you know, the 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 struggle within the context of this hymn. He says. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel oh, it. Prone, song. prone to leave the God I love, and um, and wow. he, you know, and he was there. One of the storylines that is pretty consistent is that he was traveling by stagecoach at one point, and, and he encountered a woman with a hymnal open on her lap, which who really sounds like my kind of gal, but <laughs> and she started humming this particular song and said, "Do you know this song?" And wow. he said. Yeah. Not only do I know it, but I'm the miserable man who wrote it. And oh. he told her, he poured out his heart to her and, and, you know, and said that he would give a thousand lives to know the joy and the peace he knew back then. But he lost it and he could not oh. find his way back. And he died shortly thereafter. And so, to me, he so represents so much of the human struggle and just our the our humanity and how, you know, we... Like Paul said, the things we want to do, the things that we aspire to do, the vision, you know, we can't—are not the things we end up doing Mm -hmm. so often. And so Mm. I just think there's just something so beautiful and profound about here this poor man was in such a dilemma throughout his life, and yet he leaves us this treasure, Mm. you know— That, that has sustained people. I know that song, me personally, has, I've been sustained by this song, and I can't imagine, I, 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 probably in the millions of you know, people who have been touched by yeah. this particular song.
0: It's going to mean so much oh. now to, for us to hear you sing yeah. it after that introduction, Ashley. Thank That'd you for the pleasure. story. Ashley Cleveland in the studio.
4: Every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy, never ceasing. All oh, for songs of flowers, praise. Sing me some melodious song, sung by flaming tongues. The path, Fixed upon it Name of God's Redeeming love Hitherto Thy love has Blessed me Thou hast brought me To this place And I know Thy hand safely home by thy good grace Jesus saw me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God he to rescue me from danger born me with his precious. Greater daily I'm constrained to me. Let thy goodness, like a fair bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. to leave the Take and seal it, seal it for Thy courts above, from to.
0: At. Ashley Cleveland in the studio. Ashley, thank you. Come thou founded every blessing, prone to wander, Lord. I feel I'll never hear that line again without thinking of the story behind the hymn writer.
5: Uh, I know it's yeah. really. It's re- I think about that a lot, and it makes the songs even richer to me, mm-hmm. if that were even possible.
0: Mm-hmm. You have a CD. Men and angels say that that song is on that CD, yes, right? It is. Come thou found.
1: Well, thanks for coming thank and you. giving us uh, some of your time.
5: Oh, it's my pleasure. Happy to be here.
0: We want you to do one more song before you leave today, though, Ashley. Um, But you you have uh, something called Share, Songs of Hope and Recovery for those uh, who are...
5: Well, I participated in a project called Share, which was really just a Nashville effort to uh, create a musical project that would uh, basically use songs that kind of uh, address the issue of alcoholism by talking songs that talked about how it was, songs that talk about what happened, and songs that talk about what it's like now. And I am a recovering alcoholic and drug addict, and I have a real interest in doing anything to help people to get help and to recover. And uh, they wanted to create an album to raise money for people that had no money to get treatment, but also to create awareness, because I think even with everything we know about the illness of addiction, there is still a tremendous stigma attached. And particularly in the body of Christ, particularly in the, where you just think, well, it's sin, get over it. And, and it's not quite so simple. And I do think that um, there are, you, know, there is much aid. To be had, but people have to get honest and get real about it.
1: Yeah, I think if I hear one more time someone say, "I went to AA and I I had a, a, a deeper experience of forgiveness and grace than I found at my church," if I hear that one more time, it it it, it just hurts. It tears a, you up, doesn't it? It does. It I is. mean, thank but goodness, but it is sadly true. Yeah, it is. Yeah.
5: And it is, you know, and I have to say, for me personally, I found life in those rooms that I did not find elsewhere. And a a level of acceptance, and I had sunk so low that, you know, I needed to be with other people that really understood my condition. And um, so I definitely support that. I loved being part of the SHARE project. But the other thing that I would very much like to say is that, you know, I uh grew up in the church did not always consider myself entirely happy to be there um and and yet my mother uh never could think of a good reason for us to miss church and now I'm grateful for that and that's mm-hmm. really where I learned these hymns and you know at the darkest most uh uh dreadful time when I really thought I would die uh these songs from my childhood would come back to me, and that was the reason why I made the hymn record in the first place. Well, I think was... it's having
0: that effect on people who listen to the songs today right here in the studio. You know, we have just enough time to, for one more of these okay. hymns, a, a short one. Uh, oh, a short one. <laughs> a short one. I
5: don't do short. I know, I know.
0: You
1: tell him.
5: <laughs> um, you know, I'm going to do an old spiritual, because this is in the hymnal, and um uh, it has a great story to it, but I won't tell the story. But I, I will say you should look for the story because it is a wonderful story. Uh, and But I'm going to do this song because it really became an anthem of the civil rights movement mm. and gave hope to an entire generation and race of people.
0: And with this, we'll finish our time today here in the studio with Ashley. Thank you. Thank you. For
5: this coming. this song is, is uh, written by the great uh, Thomas Dorsey, mm-hmm. and it's called Precious Lord.
4: Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, help me stand, I'm tired, and I'm a weak, I have And I
1: it's uh, it, it's